This episode includes discussions of assault and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Picture this. Carlton Banks, dressed in his signature preppy attire, does an exuberantly nerdy dance, swinging his arms, shimmying his hips, and lip-syncing to Tom Jones's It's Not Unusual. Chances are you've seen this dance performed either on TV, in a GIF, or, if you're lucky, in real life. The Carlton, as it would come to be known, got its start as a gag on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, but went on to become one of the most iconic dance moves of the 1990s. In addition to Fresh Prince, the 90s saw a wave of TV shows with black actors front and center, from Family Matters to Martin, Living Single, and many more. Not only did these sitcoms launch the careers of huge stars like Will Smith, Martin Lawrence, and Queen Latifah, they also marked a huge increase in representation for the black community. Black people saw themselves on TV not just as sidekicks or secondary characters, but as the stars of the show. While this was a step in the right direction, these kinds of shows also had their limitations. In order to appeal to wider audiences, network sitcoms mostly portrayed lighter, sanitized scenarios. Assembled in the studios of the sunny San Fernando Valley, these brightly packaged storylines were very different from the realities unfolding in the black enclave of South Central Los Angeles, just over 15 miles away. In the 1990s, this rose-tinted view of what it meant to be black was shattered by a series of violent incidents in quick succession. The fallout exposed the jagged fault line of race in Los Angeles specifically and in America as a whole. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our seventh episode on the dark side of the 90s. As every decade brings new challenges, a rosy tint has started to color these bygone years. But all this nostalgia obscures the more unpleasant bits of 90s history. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Last week, we talked about some of the less-than-savory foods of the 90s that drew the eye but sometimes upset our stomachs. Today, we'll focus our attention on the stomach-churning events surrounding the police beating of Rodney King in 1991 and its 1992 aftermath. The home video footage of this brutal action by the LAPD led to a watershed moment for awareness about racially motivated police brutality. When the officers involved were acquitted, Los Angeles was thrown into several chaotic days of rebellion, which left the city unrecognizable on every level. Then, just three years later, the verdict in the O.J. Simpson trial shocked the nation, again highlighting issues of race in the criminal justice system. We'll delve into the factors leading up to these momentous events after this. 
The rebellion that unfolded in Los Angeles in 1992 brought to light issues of racism and police brutality that had long lingered in the shadows. But the explosive events had their roots in a centuries-long pattern of violence. To more fully understand what took place, one has to take into consideration the myriad historical factors that heightened tensions between the black community and the LAPD. Ninety years before the beating of Rodney King, life was very different for black Angelinos. To some historians, the period between 1900 and 1929 was known as the golden era for black residents of Los Angeles. Their population numbers grew, homeownership increased, and small businesses thrived. But then the Great Depression hit, which was particularly devastating for black citizens. Many of their small businesses failed, and they were forced to compete for scarce jobs and housing while also dealing with discrimination. There was also an influx of migrants from Dust Bowl states to California who were also seeking work. In some cases, these newcomers may have brought with them a legacy of racial segregation and antagonism. In the mid-1930s, LAPD Chief James Davis contributed to the dragnet philosophy of policing, which involved stopping and searching anyone who looked suspicious. This, in turn, bred a legacy of police harassment, which shaped the department for decades to come. But even in the midst of this troubling pattern of police behavior, the early 1940s ushered in a wave of industrialization, which temporarily elevated the prospects for Los Angeles's black population. In 1941, the United States was pulled into World War II, which triggered a boost in factory jobs to gear up for the war effort. This led to a brief increase in upward mobility for black families and created a skilled black workforce. But once peace was declared in 1945, black workers were often the first to be let go and replaced by white veterans returning from the war. By the 1950s, LA's black community became residentially segregated, sending many into the most affordable neighborhoods, such as South Central, Watts, Inglewood, and Crenshaw. In these areas, Unemployment and crime rose, likely as a result of young men without skilled jobs or legitimate means to provide for themselves. In response, the LAPD escalated its policing of the black community, which only fueled a sense of injustice and anger. And these frustrations only grew stronger in the following decades. The sweeping Civil Rights Act of 1964 gave black Angelinos hope that they could fully participate in the American dream. But it was not enough to undo decades of discrimination and inequality. As a result, the black community struggled to reconcile the promises of the civil rights movement with the grim realities of unemployment, poverty, and police brutality. On August 11, 1965, these frustrations erupted into the Watts Rebellion. The violence was sparked around 7 p.m. after a white California highway patrolman pulled over Marquette Fry. Fry, a black man, was suspected of drunk driving down Avalon Boulevard in the heart of the Watts neighborhood. After Fry failed a sobriety test, the officer attempted to arrest him and have his car towed. Marquette's stepbrother Ronald and stepmother Rena both attempted to intervene on Marquette's behalf and were roughly arrested. A crowd of onlookers believed a rumor that Rena was pregnant, 
which made them even more angry and then violent. A physical altercation ensued, and an officer struck Marquette with his baton. More police were called to the scene and treated the crowd with hostility, which further heightened tensions. Soon, a gathering of hundreds began throwing bottles, sticks, and bricks at passing cars and buses. The unrest escalated and spread across South Central, leading to a riot that lasted for five days and nights. When all was said and done, 34 people were dead, with 1,000 injured, 4,000 arrested, and $40 million in property destroyed. In the wake of the Watts Rebellion, the city of Los Angeles instated the McCone Commission to understand what had happened and to learn how to prevent future riots. The commission made several common-sense recommendations, including increasing police oversight and expanding police community relations programs. But unfortunately, the commission's report was largely ignored. Fearing for their safety, middle-class black families and white residents departed from South Central, leaving behind those who couldn't afford to make the move. Over the next decade, the neighborhood became multicultural and multi-ethnic, populated by communities that had little experience coexisting in such close quarters. Meanwhile, the issues of police misconduct, unemployment, and job discrimination that were enumerated in the McCone Commission report not only persisted, they got worse. Between 1978 and 1992, LAPD Chief Daryl Gates ran the predominantly white department with impunity. As social welfare scholar Jewel Taylor Gibbs writes in her book, Race and Justice, Rodney King and O.J. Simpson in a House Divided, the fact that the LAPD could arrest black people without provocation, enter their homes without a warrant, and harass or assault them with impunity provoked chronic anger and outrage in the community. Between 1975 and 1982, no fewer than 16 black people were killed by police chokeholds. But distressingly, most of these incidents were deemed accidents. Occurrences like this deeply eroded any remaining faith that black Angelinos had in the justice system. The situation spiraled out of control as homicides rose to record levels in 1992. The people of South Central felt under attack, not only by criminals, but also by the police. These circumstances made Los Angeles a tinderbox. All it took was a single spark to light the city on fire. On the evening of Saturday, March 2nd, 1991, 25-year-old black man Rodney King drove up the freeway with two of his friends. King was having a great time chatting with his buddies until he heard police sirens behind him. King's heart pounded in his chest. He had just put his life back together after a year-long stint in prison for robbery, and he feared going back to jail for a minor traffic violation. So instead of pulling over... King sped up, trying to evade the authorities. The California Highway Patrol called for backup, joined soon by several LAPD squad cars in a high-speed chase. Just before 1 a.m., the police caught up to King's car and forced him off the road. Four LAPD officers, Lawrence Powell, Timothy Wind, Stacy Kuhn, and Theodore Brasino, dragged King out of the car 
and began to beat him with their batons. The commotion woke up George Holliday, who lived in a nearby apartment. He went outside and trained his new video camera on the events unfolding in front of him. While one officer shot King with a taser gun, the other three repeatedly kicked him and beat him with their batons. Holiday's video records no less than 56 baton strikes and six kicks over the course of 81 seconds. The footage also shows more than a dozen cops standing by watching and commenting on the beating without making a move to stop it. The officers assaulting King cursed him and shouted racial epithets, all while King struggled to crawl away from the blows raining down on him. But he was surrounded. There was nowhere to go. King's beating at the hands of the police resulted in extensive injuries. Bruising all over his body, burns from a taser gun, a severe concussion, facial nerve damage, a fractured eye socket, a broken cheekbone, and a broken leg. The blows were so forceful that they even knocked out several fillings from his teeth. King was taken to an emergency room where doctors were shocked by the severity of his injuries and predicted he would never fully recover. This scenario, a black man being pulled over and violently arrested, had eerie echoes of the lead-up to the Watts Rebellion nearly 30 years before. But aside from the severity of the violence in the case of Rodney King, there was another crucial difference. This time, the brutality was caught on tape. Not yet knowing about the video, Rodney King's brother, Paul, went to the Foothill Police Station the next day to file a formal complaint about the beating. Unfortunately, but unsurprisingly, the sergeant intimidated Paul and sent him away without filling out any official paperwork. The whole ordeal might have ended right then and there if not for George Holliday's damning tape, which he released to KTLA, a major Los Angeles TV station. The Rodney King tape managed to go viral, even though it was still years before the internet was widely used. Within days, the footage was plastered across news broadcasts throughout the country. Facing incontrovertible evidence of wrongdoing, all four officers involved in the beating were quickly indicted on charges of unlawful assault and use of excessive force by a police officer. The Rodney King footage triggered a moment of reckoning for the United States. With a glaring example of extreme misconduct caught on tape, the nation was forced to confront a dark truth about the severity and consequences of police brutality. Coming up, the verdict in the Rodney King trial sets off a violent uprising. Now, back to the story. In March of 1991, the videotaped beating of 25-year-old Rodney King at the hands of four LAPD officers shocked the United States, triggering a long-overdue conversation about issues of race and police brutality. Within Los Angeles, Black residents were angered by what they saw, but not entirely shocked. They had come to expect such treatment at the hands of police. There was even a sense of hope that now that such a vivid example of police misconduct had been captured on tape, perhaps some justice might be served. 
But just two weeks later, another horrific taped incident further fanned the flames of racial tension within South Central L.A. On March 16th of 1991, a black teenager named Latasha Harlins walked into the Empire Liquor Store to buy groceries for her family. The Korean store owner, a woman named Soon Ja Du, watched carefully as 15-year-old Harlins put a bottle of orange juice in her backpack and made her way to the counter with money in hand. Du physically confronted Harlins about what she saw as attempted theft, pulling at Harlins' sweater and backpack to recover the bottle of juice, which cost $1.79. Latasha fought back, striking Du in the face and knocking her down, which allowed her to break free from Du's grip. At this point, Harlins left the bottle of juice on the counter and turned to leave. But she only made it a few steps. Dew pulled out a gun and shot Harlins in the back of her head from point-blank range, killing her. When police arrived at the scene, they found $2 bills still clutched in Harlins' hand. At first, the killing of Latasha Harlins was covered in select national papers, but didn't make front-page news. Within Los Angeles's Black and Korean communities, however, the incident triggered anger and discord. As in the case of Rodney King, the entire incident was caught on tape, this time by a surveillance camera. Despite the footage clearly showing that Harlins was leaving the store when she was shot, Soon Ja Du claimed that she fired in self-defense because she believed her life was in danger. In October of 1991, Du was convicted of voluntary manslaughter. The maximum sentence could be 16 years in prison, but Judge Joyce Carlin sentenced Du to just five years probation, 400 hours of community service, and a $500 fine. In late April of 1992, a state appeals court unanimously upheld Judge Carlin's sentencing. Meanwhile, The trial for the officers who beat Rodney King was reaching its end. The black community followed the trial closely, hoping for vindication. After what they saw as a grave miscarriage of justice in the case of Soon Ja Du, they hoped that at least the four LAPD officers would face consequences for brutally beating Rodney King. But from the outset of the trial, that outcome was by no means a foregone conclusion. In a surprising move, the defense attorneys for the police successfully argued that it would be impossible for their clients to receive a fair trial in Los Angeles due to the extreme publicity around the case. As a result, the proceedings were moved from Los Angeles to the distant suburb of Simi Valley, a predominantly white area which also happened to be home to many active and retired police officers. This meant that prospective jurors were likely to know police officers personally, as neighbors, friends, or even family members. While this might have biased the jury against Rodney King given the nature of the case, the selection process went ahead anyway. The prosecution felt limited in their options, but they did the best they could. The jury, drawn from the surrounding community, was composed of six white men, four white women, one Hispanic woman, and one Filipina woman. It would be hard to argue that this was a jury of Rodney King's peers. In another interesting point, Rodney King himself did not take the stand during the trial 
as the prosecution didn't think it was necessary to make their case. After all, they had irrefutable video evidence of the events to play for the jury. This total faith in the power of the videotape turned out to be misplaced. By this point, a year after the beating had originally occurred, the footage had been played on the news hundreds of times, diminishing its shock factor. And the defense also employed a crafty move to further lessen the impact of the tape. Attorneys for the LAPD broke the video down into still images and provided justifications for the officer's behavior after each frame. Fragmenting the footage made it harder to judge the speed and ferocity of the blows, which in turn made the officer's conduct easier to defend. The jury of predominantly white Simi Valley residents was likely receptive to the explanations from the defense. The members of the jury interpreted the video in the only way they could, through the lens of their own interactions with the police or their own backgrounds in the military or police force. And these were obviously very different experiences from Rodney King's. In their experience, it is likely that the police didn't use force unless it was absolutely necessary. So hearing attorneys calmly explain why each blow was delivered likely relieved a sense of cognitive dissonance and gave the members of the jury a way to make sense of what they witnessed. On April 29th of 1992, after a six-week trial and six hours of deliberation, the jury returned their verdict. Officer Lawrence Powell, who had meted out the most blows to King, was found guilty on one count of excessive force. The other three officers, Theodore Brasino, Stacy Kuhn, and Timothy Wind, were found not guilty on all counts. The verdicts were widely met with shock and disbelief. Then came the anger. Rodney King's beating had been caught on tape, the evidence of unprovoked violence and brutality was undeniable. And yet, for the most part, the officers got off scot-free, like it didn't even happen, like Rodney King's suffering wasn't real, like it didn't matter. The verdict was a slap in the face, a denial of King's fundamental humanity, and by extension, that of the entire Black community. Miles away from the Simi Valley courtroom, residents of South Central LA had a particularly visceral reaction. This was due to the cumulative effect of several factors. By 1992, more than half of the neighborhood's population was black and tensions had been mounting between the community and the police for decades. What's more, unemployment was rampant, a drug epidemic was ravaging the area, and gang activity and violent crime were high. In this context, the community was deeply angered by and resentful of the LAPD. Black people felt that they were simultaneously over-policed and under-policed. They were often victims of harassment and excessive force. And when they did need protection from criminals, the police weren't there to defend them. In the wake of Latasha Harlan's killer walking free, the acquittal of the officers who beat Rodney King proved to be one more indignity than the black community could stand. The officers' acquittals were announced around 3 p.m. on April 29th, and less than an hour later, there were signs of growing civil unrest at the corner of Florence and Normandy Avenues. 
This intersection in South Central quickly became the epicenter of the uprising. Frustrated and enraged by the Rodney King verdict, residents began throwing rocks and bottles at passing cars. This marked a sinister echo of the Watts Rebellion that had broken out nearly 30 years earlier and five miles away. And just like in 1965, the violence quickly intensified. White motorists were targeted, and some were pulled out of their cars and beaten. A news helicopter circled, capturing the escalating chaos and broadcasting the video live. One incident in particular became emblematic of the violent uprising. Around 6.45 p.m., 33-year-old white truck driver Reginald Denny pulled up to a red stoplight at the corner of Florence and Normandy. A group of four black men dragged him out of the cab of his red dump truck by his hair. The men proceeded to attack Denny until he was unconscious, at one point even throwing a cinder block at his head, fracturing his skull. Across the country, thousands of people watched the live video, horrified by the attack. Four Good Samaritans, all black, saw what was happening and took it upon themselves to help Denny before it was too late. Working together, they pulled Denny back into his truck and drove him to the nearest hospital, saving his life. Meanwhile, the uprising continued all day, plunging Los Angeles further into chaos. Residents set fires, looted, and destroyed various stores and businesses. Empire Liquor, the store where Latasha Harlins was killed, was one of the hundreds of buildings to go up in flames, obscuring the Los Angeles skyline with plumes of dark smoke. By the third day, the crowds in the street grew more diverse. Black, Latino, Asian, and white people broke into stores and stole food, clothing, and appliances. In the midst of simmering tension with the black community in the wake of Latasha Harlins' killing, Many Korean store owners armed themselves to protect their businesses from looters. Gunfights broke out, escalating the hostility into violence. The city of Los Angeles was completely overwhelmed by the sudden explosion of unrest. Even as hundreds of 911 calls began to pour in, the police didn't respond to the growing unrest for nearly three hours. L.A. Mayor Tom Bradley called for a state of emergency just before 9 p.m. on the 29th, and 2,000 National Guard troops were ordered to report to the city by California Governor Pete Wilson. Despite these efforts, the uprising continued for four more days, disrupting daily life for all Angelinos. A nightly curfew was put into place, mail service was interrupted, and many residents found it impossible to get to work or school. Three days into the uprising, on May 1st, Rodney King himself attempted to stop the violence. Standing outside a courthouse with cameras trained on him from all sides, he made a now-famous plea. Can we all get along? The answer, for at least three more days, appeared to be a resounding no. But by the morning of May 4th, the National Guard had the city under control. The curfew was lifted and businesses began to reopen. With the rioting declared over, it was time to take stock of the damage. In the aftermath of the rebellion, Los Angeles looked like it had been hit by an earthquake or some other natural disaster. Some entire city blocks were burned out, reduced to rubble. More than 50 people were dead 
including 10 killed at the hands of LAPD officers and National Guardsmen. More than 2,000 people were injured, and as many as 12,000 were arrested for rioting, looting, and arson. More than 1,000 buildings were damaged, and it's estimated that $1 billion worth of property was destroyed. But the human cost, in terms of suffering and loss, can never be truly calculated. Los Angeles was forever changed. The illusion of the bright, shiny city of dreams was shattered. And in just a few years, LA would again be turned upside down by another momentous, racially charged event. Coming up, the O.J. Simpson case reignites tensions in the wake of the Los Angeles uprising. Now, back to the story. After the four LAPD officers who beat Rodney King were acquitted, Los Angeles was plunged into five days of violence, vandalism, and looting. As the smoke cleared, literally and figuratively, the city was left to figure out what transpired and how to prevent it from happening again. Less than 30 years after the Watts Rebellion, history had repeated itself. And just like back in 1965, the mayor of L.A. formed a commission to study the LAPD. This group, known as the Christopher Commission, found evidence that the police department had a pervasive and extensive pattern of misconduct, harassment, and brutality. The commission's findings made it inescapably clear to the people of Los Angeles that incidents of police misconduct and brutality were not rare. They were standard operating procedure. But just like in the aftermath of the Watts Rebellion, much was said and written about police misconduct, but not much was actually done to change the pattern of behavior. The years went by and the status quo remained largely unchanged. Back on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Carlton stopped dancing for long enough to help Uncle Phil clean up the old neighborhood in an episode that tiptoed around the recent upheaval. After that, it went back to business as usual. Then, in 1994, O.J. Simpson's murder trial became yet another incident which shone a light on the nature of racial inequality in the criminal justice system. In time, the names Rodney King and O.J. Simpson would become, in different ways, shorthand for the shortcomings of the criminal justice system. Interestingly, there were several parallels between King and Simpson long before the 1990s. Both were black men born into troubled homes. Both had brushes with the law starting in their teen years. At age 15, Simpson was caught robbing a liquor store. But as fate would have it, Simpson was imbued with charm and an athletic talent that King simply didn't have. And these gifts launched Simpson to a virtually unprecedented level of fame and wealth. Simpson was a first-round draft pick for the Buffalo Bills in 1969, and over the next nine years, he rose to fame, crushing records as a singular running back. At the height of his professional football career, he became a spokesman for Hertz car rentals and starred in national commercials, which solidified his status as a household name. Writing in Sport Magazine in 1995, Harry Edwards put it this way, Before Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, or Shaquille O'Neal, there was O.J., superstar pitchman, actor, 
sportscaster, and all-around celebrity. With unrivaled crossover appeal, he was living out the American dream, living proof of the vitality and viability of America's promise to all its people. By all outward appearances, Simpson had a perfect life. His fame and fortune made him a legend, particularly in the black community. It seemed like he could do no wrong. But under the surface, there were signs that there was very much trouble in paradise. In 1967, Simpson married his high school sweetheart, a black woman named Marguerite Whitley. But 10 years later, when he was 29, he began openly dating Nicole Brown, a much younger white woman, while he was still married. It wasn't until 1980 that Simpson finalized his divorce. Simpson married Nicole in February of 1985 when he was 38 and she was 26. But from the beginning, there were signs that the relationship was not built to last. Simpson subjected his wife to psychological and physical abuse, and by the end of 1988, their marriage was in crisis. On New Year's Eve, a fight between the couple escalated into a physical altercation, which led Nicole to call the police and file assault charges against her husband. However, Simpson wielded his celebrity and charm to sweep the matter under the rug, receiving a reduced sentence. Nicole Brown Simpson filed for divorce in March of 1992, and Simpson did not take it well. He obsessed over her, even going so far as to follow her home and spy on her while she had sex with other men. Despite this deeply troubling behavior, Nicole tried to reconcile with her ex-husband in early 1994. However, she soon realized that Simpson hadn't really changed and decided to end the relationship for good in May of 1994. On the evening of June 12, 1994, Nicole and Simpson's daughter Sydney had a dance recital. Both Nicole and Simpson attended, but were seated separately. Afterward, Simpson asked to join the family for dinner at the restaurant Mezzaluna, but Nicole refused. Simpson was left standing in the lobby, rejected and alone. Shortly after midnight that evening, the bodies of Nicole Brown and her friend Ron Goldman were found lying in two pools of blood, murdered. Simpson became a person of interest almost immediately. When LAPD officers arrived at his house to inform him of the murder, they found blood on the door of his white Ford Bronco, as well as a bloody glove. Simpson quickly began assembling his dream team of defense attorneys, including Robert Shapiro, Johnny Cochran, and Robert Kardashian. The team was the best lawyers that money could buy. As soon as Simpson was arrested, the media went into a frenzy. When the trial of the century began in January of 1995, news stations provided gavel-to-gavel coverage. The sensational case permeated every aspect of popular culture, from daytime talk shows to Saturday Night Live and, of course, countless tabloid covers. As the trial got underway, the defense was perfectly happy to select a jury from Los Angeles County. Simpson was a local hero after playing football for USC. So, unlike in the case of Rodney King, the jury reflected a multi-ethnic character. The final panel included nine black people, eight women and one man, two white women, and one Hispanic man. 
Led by Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden, the prosecution made their case against Simpson, highlighting the damning DNA evidence, including his blood found on a glove at the crime scene. Johnny Cochran counterpunched in his bombastic opening statement for the defense, suggesting that his client might have been the victim of a police conspiracy against a famous black man. In light of this argument, white LAPD detective Mark Furman quickly became a prominent figure in the trial. He had been instrumental in discovering much of the physical evidence against Simpson, including the iconic bloody glove. And Furman also had a history of racially tinged encounters on the force. One of Simpson's defense lawyers, F. Lee Bailey, dug into him on cross-examination. He tried to establish that Furman might have a racial bias against Simpson, which could have motivated him to plant evidence to ensure a conviction. Furman adamantly denied holding any racist attitudes and specifically swore that he had not used the N-word in 10 years. Weeks later, this came back to bite him when the infamous Furman tapes were introduced as evidence. The recordings captured Furman using the N-word dozens of times, which proved that he had lied on the stand. That would have been devastating enough for the prosecution's case, but the tapes contained much darker details. In the tapes, Furman implied that police brutality was a common practice in the LAPD. In one instance, the detective bragged that he and a fellow officer had beaten four suspects so badly that they had to wipe blood off their badges. This was just four years after the Rodney King beating, and the shocking images were still burned into the national consciousness. These statements confirmed the kinds of racist, violent attitudes that Black people believed the LAPD held about their community. The tapes also cast a sinister light on the Simpson case. Furman made several references to planting evidence and falsifying reports to get a conviction at other points in his career. By means of justification, he said, that's putting a criminal in jail. That's being a policeman. In light of this damning evidence from Furman's own mouth, the defense suggested that Furman could have illegally searched Simpson's home and planted evidence. This argument was bolstered by the mistrust of the police in the wake of the Rodney King trial. Many black people in the country, particularly those living in South Central, had experienced police mistreatment like this firsthand. Within the black community, it was completely believable that the LAPD could and would frame a black man, even a beloved celebrity like Simpson. After all, if the police could take down OJ, one of the most famous black men of all time, it would send a message that no one in the community was safe. Cochran capitalized on this dynamic in his closing statement. According to author Jewel T. Gibbs, he urged the jury to send a message to the LAPD that misconduct against a black man would no longer be tolerated. These words were a clear allusion to the specter of Rodney King, which had hovered over the entire case. On October 2nd of 1995, the jury went into deliberation. Shockingly, after hearing testimony for the better part of a year, the jury returned a verdict in less than four hours. Over 150 million people watched on TV as the verdict was delivered live. On both counts of murder, O.J. Simpson was pronounced not guilty. 
Outside the courtroom, black people held signs declaring Simpson's innocence, raised their fists in victory, and danced in the streets. This was a microcosm of the black community in America, which was largely celebratory in the wake of the verdict. Far from rejoicing at the acquittal of a guilty man, they were relieved at what they saw as a black defendant finally getting a fair trial in an unfair system. Meanwhile, the white people standing on the opposite side of a barricade, one that was both practical and symbolic, had a very different reaction. They seemed shocked and confused, then frustrated and outraged at what they saw as a grave miscarriage of justice. Just like in the aftermath of the Rodney King incident, the verdict threw into relief a very raw, very real fault line in America. The country's split reaction exposed the reality that the United States are anything but, divided by race, culture, politics, and socioeconomic status. These divides have endured in the 25 years since 1995, and police brutality against the Black community has persisted. Among many horrifying examples, the most recent high-profile case is the killing of George Floyd by police in May of 2020. As in the case of Rodney King, this horrifying incident was captured on video as a Minneapolis police officer held his knee on Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes. On the surface, this tragedy seems like one more in a long line leading all the way back to the country's founding. Another horrific event with echoes of the Rodney King beating of 1991 which in turn had echoes of the violent Watts Rebellion of 1965. But George Floyd's killing and the ensuing uprising feels noticeably different from those that have come before. For one thing, the protests and demonstrations that have broken out look different. They've taken root all over the world. It's no longer only Black people in the streets expressing their frustration and anger. It's an interracial coalition. A critical mass of white people and other people of color have awoken to the pervasive, extensive horror of police brutality in America. And they're joining in the fight against it. This time around, dozens of cities across America and the world, Los Angeles included, seem to be making concrete changes like the ones recommended by the Christopher Commission and the McCone Commission before that. In Minneapolis, where Floyd was killed, the city council has pledged to begin the process of ending the city's police department altogether. And in Los Angeles, a proposal has been introduced to redirect $100 to $150 million from the LAPD budget to support disadvantaged communities and communities of color. Although this is only a drop in the bucket for the LAPD's overall budget, which is nearly $1.2 billion annually. Since emerging in the early 90s, the Internet has changed virtually every facet of modern life, including the way protests are organized. The very idea of social media platforms like Instagram or Twitter would have been nearly unimaginable back at the dawn of the Internet. But today, these apps are connecting demonstrators around the world, uniting and amplifying their voices. There is still a long road ahead of us, but with this new national consciousness and these proposed reforms, there may just be a light at the end of this darkest of tunnels. 
Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. For more information on this topic, amongst the many sources we used, we found Race and Justice, Rodney King and O.J. Simpson in A House Divided, by Jewel Taylor Gibbs, especially helpful. Next week, we're delving into Beanie Babies, the cute plush critters that sometimes brought out the inner monsters of more extreme collectors. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Nani Okwalagu, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. <laughs>